May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you knew, if you were convinced that you were coming to the end of your life, what would you be sure to tell your loved ones? Is there a particular piece of advice that you hope you would be able to lodge in their memories one last time? Or would you just trust that a lifetime together would be enough to get the message across so that no more words were necessary? A number of years ago, now my father was in the hospital for a serious surgical procedure. And while it seemed like everything was going to turn all right, if there were last words that he wanted to share, that was really the moment to get them across, just in case. But he just never did. There was no secret wisdom that my father had been holding back. So as he prepared for the surgery, we just mostly spent time together as a family in prayer and in quiet. And then finally, the nurses came to take him up to the operating room. And I think the last actual words he heard from us before he went to surgery, he came back, (laughs) which is important because what my brother said as he got into the elevator was, if you were really cool, you'd do it without the anesthesia. Now, Dad came out the other end of that surgery just fine, but I know, because I asked him, that he believed that there actually were no final words he needed to say, that his life had contained all of the teaching that he had to give, and that in case of emergency, there were no secret wisdom just waiting for us. So in this morning, the reading from the book of Deuteronomy, Moses knows that he is not going to cross the Jordan River, into the promised land. He is preparing to die, and so we listen in on the closing of his final speech to God's people, Israel. After we spent all summer working through Luke and Acts, it's good to get back to the fuller selection of lectionary passages as the fall starts. And one reason we do this, one reason every Sunday we read the Old Testament, the Psalms, the New Testament, and the Gospel is because we're convinced that to understand the life that Jesus Christ calls us to, you have to be able to use the whole of Scripture as a lens of interpretation. As Paul said to Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jesus himself clearly believed that knowing the scripture, particularly what we call the Old Testament, was important. He quoted them extensively through his ministry. When he's tempted by Satan in the Sermon on the Mount, when discussing the two greatest commandments, and of course, on the cross. Jesus leaned on all of scripture. So we follow his example because we are convinced that the work of the Holy Spirit means that through the writers and editors and collators, those who gathered these sacred texts together, God is speaking to us. And we hear Moses this morning speaking his own final words. 
His lack of trust in the wilderness means that he'll have to stay on the far side of the river and not enter into the promised land. A whole generation of Israelites, you'll remember, suffered and died in the desert without seeing the consummation of what God had promised them. And Moses suffered alongside them and eventually shared their punishment. He's remembered in the Jewish tradition in Hebrew as Moshe Rabbeinu, or Moses, our rabbi. He's the great teacher, the greatest teacher and leader and prophet that Israel ever had, and he stands over and above all others. And before he passes his mantle of leadership on, he gives the people instructions imbued with his prophetic spirit. At the end of all their wilderness wandering, here are the things they need to hear one more time. And rather than giving a list of moral precepts or rules, Deuteronomy records essentially what is preached law, the kind of wisdom that parents give to children that will serve them well in the time to follow if only they will listen and obey. So the choice that Moses holds before Israel at the end of all this preaching is between goodness and life or evil and death. If they will love the Lord and walk in his ways and keep his commandments, then they will be blessed. But if they turn away, ignore God and go after the idols, they will surely perish. Now, on the face of it, that doesn't seem like such a hard choice, does it? Which of us, when the stakes are made so obvious, would choose death instead of life? What kind of madness would that be? But Moses knows Israel very well. He's familiar with their willful nature. And he makes sure to remind them that there has to be a choice made. That they cannot just hope for the best outcome without choosing a side. The challenge for human beings, the challenge for you and I, is to turn away from evil and make that positive choice for good. And it's not particularly intellectual. It's actually a spiritual choice. We are not, unfortunately, just brains floating in tanks. We're creatures, and we make decisions with our emotions. In fact, we respect people generally more if they make decisions with their heart, with their guts. We like leaders to have, you know, gumption. And it gets us into trouble. Because we know the right thing to do, but knowing is not the issue. We choose the wrong thing anyway. We know that there are consequences for our wrong choices, but we kind of hope that we're gonna be able to skate by. We understand that it'll hurt when we fall, And yet we just ignore the logic and the consequences and the pro and con list that you might have written up and careen headlong into the future without consideration. But we cannot say that we have not been warned. It's a little bit like when mom and dad are going out for the evening and they gather the children before the babysitter and give the instructions all at once. Everyone heard the same thing all at the same time and knows the rules And yet sometimes there's going to be a dispute later about whether or not it was clear what time bedtime really was. And so when we stray, there are consequences. 
And those consequences are rarely limited to just us. God's interaction with us is both deeply personal and also utterly collective. Our lives are bound up together, that we are therefore unavoidably linked with others. Sometimes even with those we might not want to be bound to, but it cannot be avoided. Israel and the church both are collectivist enterprises. We need one another and we cannot hope to get through life or to practice our faith alone or in private. In the church, of course, we remind ourselves of this often in baptism and in other moments. We promise to be accountable to one another, to pray for one another, to love one another as Christ loves us. Because God deals with us as one people, one body following one Lord. So the charge to choose the good and to choose life is rightly presented by Moses to the whole congregation of Israel. And it is a reminder for our congregation that we have to rededicate ourselves to those values that we share as we seek to follow Christ together. Choosing the good has to be a consistent through line in our lives. So here are just three ways that I think this can be applied. You may think of some others. So we choose the good as Christians when we celebrate children, when we welcome them into the life of a congregation like ours, as a sign of the lively presence of Jesus among us. This is a hard thing. But it means supporting parents and families and creating a church as a space that is welcoming, not just for adults, but for everyone. Starting next week, when our children go back to Sunday school, we're going to pray for them together and pray with them. And we're also going to welcome them back from their time of learning and instruction, not just to spare them from the sermon, um, but also because we think God loves children and wants them to know about his love. And we bring them back for Eucharist because we want them to know that they are included in the body of Christ in this place and they're welcome here. Serving the students at Fairview Middle School is another way that we care for children. Our volunteers began this week to welcome kids coming back to the new school year to help them find their lockers and their homerooms. And this is one way that we bring the life and the light of Jesus into a place that for some can be very dark. I don't know if you remember what middle school was like. It was not that long ago for me, relatively. I have to tell you, it was not that much fun. And just by being present there, volunteers from St. Charles and other churches in our region are helping to bring life into a place that can feel pretty deathly. Now, that may never lead to explicit preaching of the gospel, But the gospel is still present where Christians are serving others because Christ served us. We also choose life when we welcome strangers and newcomers and extend Christian hospitality to them as if they were Jesus himself. As the letter to the Hebrews says, by doing this, some have entertained angels unawares. The welcome that strangers receive from Christians is an echo of the welcome that we have all received from Christ himself, who died to redeem us while we were yet sinners. Over and over again, when folks talk to me about why they come to St. Charles, it is not the building, although we're getting there, as you may have noticed. It's 
not the building or the organ or the preaching, but it's the connections that they make with other people who stop and take the time to introduce themselves to someone that they may not already know. And that's an act of, believe it or not, pretty serious vulnerability. Admitting that you don't know somebody can be pretty awkward, even here in our very connected world. And the important thing to remember is, of course, that we were all, at some point, strangers somewhere. All of us have known that experience of being in a place that's unfamiliar, being lost. But Jesus, when we were strangers, decided to call us and make a place for us and help us find our way around in his new family. And if Christ did it for us, while we were yet sinners and enemies of God, how much more should we do the same for others? Thirdly, we choose the good, we choose life, when we speak to one another with kindness and generosity as brothers and sisters in Christ, precious children of the same God who made the whole universe. This is, I think, one of the most radically counterculture things that Christians can do anymore, because the world is such a sharp place. But if we take seriously the notion that we've been called together as one collective body, not just as individuals, then we must have a love for one another on display that would seem excessive almost anywhere else. And that means that our commitment to remaining a part of the body of Christ requires us to show that love, not just as a kind of low-grade toleration for each other, but genuine affection. Remaining a part of the body of Christ means that we can express that love for one another. Because if we're serious about our relationship with Jesus, we have to be serious about fostering relationships with others who are also seeking to follow the same Lord. It's a little bit like a marriage. A married couple does not just make vows once, but renews them every day. Those of you who are married, I suspect, know this to be true. Uh, You renew those vows over and over and over again by continuing to love and care for one another. It requires making a choice some days, I'm told. (laughs) Or else we risk forgetting why you made that commitment in the first place. That's just as true for us. We remind one another constantly that we indeed have chosen to be here together. So we can choose the good. And we do that and we can enter into every new moment of life with God with joy and anticipation. Looking forward to the next thing that the Holy Spirit might do in our midst. Because we trust that the God who brought Israel up from Egypt and raised Jesus from the dead is still at work here in and through us. Now we are always seeking a quicker fix for the challenges that we face. We're looking for easy solutions, easy answers. But the fact is that we are on a very long journey together, a long path to abundant life that requires careful steps. And it is, unfortunately, not always the quickest path to the destination. But in the end, it is not where we are going that matters, but the journey itself. And I suspect that's something that Moses learned. 
He was undoubtedly disappointed not to be able to enter into and enjoy the promised land. But the reward was not an end in itself. The journey of faithfulness, the journey of faithfulness is to be savored for its own merits. Jesus makes this point even more strongly in this morning's lesson from the gospel. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then again, any one of you who does not denounce all he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says that to follow him, it takes giving things up. It takes making a choice to turn our backs on all of the bright, shiny things that might distract us, pick up our cross, and go where he is leading. Choosing that path does not offer us or guarantee health, wealth, happiness, peace, or any of the benefits that we might hope to receive for ourselves or for our children. There are no guarantees in this life, no matter what Moses says. Instead, being a disciple asks us to give everything else up, lay it all aside, and walk that road with trust, despite the suffering, despite the troubles, despite the things that we might wrestle with along the way, because we are convinced that it is the path itself that is righteous and that the destination will indeed be worth it. Because at the end of all our wandering, there is one thing that makes all of that sacrifice worthwhile and it is better even than the promised land itself. Because at the end, there is God. God himself is waiting for us. If we choose life, our reward is the overwhelming, beautiful, ultimate, life-giving presence of God. That is what Moses gained. And that is what we are right to hope for ourselves. And that is wisdom that it may take a lifetime to understand.